it's not all luck and it's not all talent and it's not all effort. It's a combination of those. And at the end of the day, you put in as much as you can. And there's just different percentages of contribution from a lot of factors. It's it's the nature versus nurture argument. Of course, it's not 100% like if something happens in the world, it's not 100% just innate and instinctive. And it's also not 100% just based on environmental factors. It's a, it's a combination of the two. This podcast shows that Ukraine is not what foreigners see on television. Together, we will break all the stereotypes about Ukrainians so that when the flag of Ukraine is lifted anywhere in the world, everyone will know Ukraine and its unique culture because today Ukraine has a dynamic new generation that will change the world. Hello, my name is Aziz and I have a deep connection with Ukraine. My grandfather volunteered in 1987 to help liquidate the Chernobyl chemical radiation because he believed in humanity. He was a real hero for me. And even though he struggled with cancer after that for the rest of his life, he always told me many great things about Ukraine and its people. Then from 2018, to 2019 for two years, I began working with UNICEF in Ukraine to help build orphanages for Ukrainian children. And thank you. Thank you all so much for the support. More than 240 people participated in this project for Ukraine, from the vice president of the Helen Marlin Group to the vice chancellor of the UGCC Church to the president of the Erasmus Student Network Kiev, to the president of the World Trade Center Kiev, to students from the FLEX program, Ukraine Global Scholars, United World College, Harvard, and the London School of Economics, to the United Nations, to interns at the Ukrainian Parliament and at the Canadian Parliament, to top 1% students in Ukraine but not only them. This project is for all Ukrainians from all backgrounds and for all friends of Ukraine. So if you wish to participate, send me a message on Instagram at aziz.future and join the Telegram channel Kiev Future. My goal is to make interviews with hundreds of Ukrainians and the world is listening. This podcast is already top 50 in the United Kingdom, France, Switzerland, and Monaco. Top 25 in Austria, Germany, Canada, Russia, and Poland. Top 15 in Australia, Italy, Spain, and Dubai. And top 10 in Norway, Sweden, the Netherlands, South Korea, Singapore, and many other places because this is now officially the number one podcast on Apple about Ukraine. Together, we will break the stereotypes. Together, we will help all other countries discover and respect the greatness of Ukrainian people. And this good reputation will support the development of Ukraine, creating more opportunities for every Ukrainian to have a better life. 
My guest today is Nicoletta Suruciano. Nicoletta is a friend of Ukraine. She is currently a first-year student at University of Bristol, which is a top 10 institution in the UK. In 2019, she won an academic scholarship to the United Kingdom at Earthcliff College and graduated in June 2020 with honors in mathematics, economics, and psychology. And right now, she is working at a consultancy startup and she is interested in the startup scene. Born in Chisinau, Moldova, Nicoletta is the organizer of a Model UN conference and the organizer of various projects within Interact, such as a run-in project, an online webinar series, and charity projects. Her favorite quote is, Pardon me, but I gotta run. The facts uncommonly clear by Frank Sinatra from his song, Angel Eyes. Nicoletta, how are you today? I'm perfect. Thank you so much for the kind introduction. And thank you for sharing some of your stories. They were quite uh, interesting. Thank you so much. You're really kind. And I would like to begin with something more emotional about the emotional side of Nicoletta. Yes, you work hard. You achieve a lot, but when you want to forget all troubles, to recharge yourself emotionally, to feel alive and experience your favorite emotions, what's something you like to do to feel just like that? Well, something that I've got into around two years ago is running. Um, it just really helps me clear my head. Um, I usually run with music and it's a great time just for myself to think not only about mundane things, but also about spiritual stuff, uh, just observe the nature around me and kind of escape from the real world for uh, a few moments, uh, an hour, usually a day. And um, I think it's uh, really good for me. I've managed to turn running, as you previously mentioned, into also the workspace and translate that into some of the projects that I've been working on. So I guess it's a nice juxtaposition between the things that I like to do in my free time and also how can I adapt them to the workspace and projects that I do. Yeah, in French, it's called joindre l'utile à l'agréable. And I have so many questions about this. <laughs> First, you mentioned looking around, noticing the scenery, the nature around you for around an hour a day. I want to make sure, generally, when you're not running, is your mind racing? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, that's actually um, something that I tend to do a lot because I feel like I'm constantly running around. Why I chose the Sinatra quote is it best describes me, I believe, because I'm always uh, on the go, always on the run. And it's very good for me to just have some time to myself to stop and think. I think we, we live in a quite volatile world at the moment, uh, this VUCA world, as you would call it, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And I think all of us need to get back to our roots and for a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes each day, just to try and introspect 
and try to look around and just um, just think for a second about the, our surroundings and where we're headed. Did you say dukkha, which is the Buddhist term for suffering? Vuka. Uh, it's the acronym for the type of world we're living in. The the term describes what our 21st century world. Really, I thought you are like <laughs> love and Buddhism because dukkha is that the nature of existence is suffering. Okay. Well, imagine this. Is- I know it's appropriate, <laughs> but I want to focus on you even more. Mm-hmm. Imagine this: you're not you. Imagine the you you are now is actually your daughter in the future. And you're looking at her trying to understand why she thinks so much. Why would your daughter think so much outside of running? What does it give her or what security does it get her? Or what does it save her from that this thinking or grasping becomes such a habit and routine and common in her life? Um, well, I guess thinking and overthinking is quite a common thing for the 21st century is just because we are constantly bombarded with so much information. I think it would be wrong not to think so much because you're constantly analyzing things and constantly just trying to one up yourself and just to absorb all of this information that's being pushed towards you. And I guess my daughter is just adapting to the world that we are bound to live in a couple of years and just trying to critically just analyze the things that are going on. Um, Of course, overthinking can be something bad as well, but it can also be an advantage to always think about the next step and always be ahead of what other people might do to you or things that might come your way. Tell me more. So if I were in your shoes, imagine me, uh, you will take a break from one day, of one day from your life, and I'll take your role, I'll be Nicoletta for a day. Teach me how to be you, how to overthink, be one step ahead of what will happen and what others will do. What should I do? What should I think about? Do I imagine it? Do I write it in a journal? Uh, Do I picture it? Do I imagine situations? Do I play it like a game of chess? I don't know. You're the expert on Nicoletta. Teach me that job so that you can have a one-day vacation from your life and just relax, and I will do it in the best way. Uh, Well, for me, it's not quite uh, a game of chess. It's more vague in a sense. It's just about uh, contingency factors, so analyzing situations and making up scenarios of several outcomes of those. And of course, some outcomes may be bad. Some outcomes may be perfect for you, but it's just a matter of trying to see it from every angle uh, that would kind of be the system and then trying not to fixate so much on the catastrophic outcomes. This is something that I had a problem with in the past, just um only seeing the empty side of a glass if you know what i mean and um i learned in recent years and especially since i moved to the uk that you don't need to fixate on that just try to look at things realistically not negatively nor positively i feel like that would be kind of the perfect recipe for being nicoletta for a day thank you so it's almost like doing a probability tree 
creating scenarios and contingencies for each, trying to not catastrophize or uh, put on rosy glasses or whatever, be in the middle band, and to be ready for whatever of those scenarios might come. Yeah. Because in the past, you had, a, you had the tendency to over-focus on the worst-case scenario. Did I get this correctly? Yes, indeed. And what does this give you? Imagine if you couldn't do those scenarios, what would be missing? And what value do those or that pattern or way of thinking add to your life? Well, it's not a question what it adds to my life specifically. It's what it adds to all of our lives, really. It's why we are on this earth. If we weren't able to analyze things and we weren't able to think in the future or think about the past, we wouldn't be conscious. That's the whole reason why we have this brain and we have this prefrontal cortex. We can analyze things. If we weren't able to do those things, not just in my case, if us as humans weren't able to do those things, we would be just at the level of animals where we just think based on our emotions and act on our emotions using our amygdala and not really using our part of the brain that was designed especially to be able to forecast these scenarios and to be able to be just there in the in the world. Thank you. And I'll play the devil's advocate a little bit. <laughs> I was once speaking to the head of a big investment firm. And according to him, actually, most smart people are stuck in their comfort zone because they realize their limitations, they understand perfectly the risks at play, while very stupid people don't see their limitations and they don't see the risks. They're overconfident, over-optimistic, and therefore they tend to succeed more in life because they will be, begin like create projects, startups, stand up to lead people without any shyness. And therefore, in practice, in theory, yes, the thinking makes us not animals and more than a lizard than a mammal or whatever it is. But in practice, if you look around, it's the people who don't think that tend to be become the leaders and the big mouths and the, <laughs> the big successes yeah. because they're not shy about taking more risks and letting variance play in their lives while others who are smart realize too well the catastrophic scenarios and their weaknesses, and therefore they tend to have the paralysis of analysis and stay stuck. So if you heard such an argument, what would you say? Well, I would kind of agree, because statistically speaking, it is true that most people that are top CEOs or uh, people that got very far off in life are people that uh, tend to not overthink so much. And those people usually suffer from psychopathy and are not really able to experience any type of emotions outside of that adrenaline rush. They're not really able to feel empathy and they're not really feeling emotions other than that. But 
What I would say, it is possible to, um, if we're talking about investing or just life in general, it is possible to make educated decisions while also taking into consideration the risks. For example, if you would want to invest in the portfolio, there's different types of portfolio. You can do minimal risk or high risk. And it's just a matter of what suits you. When taking a type of risk of the sort, I think it's important as I said, not to get lost in the catastrophe scenarios and also look on the bright side, but also be very realistic about it. Because, for example, startups, most firms fail. Uh, what we see in the media and the CEOs that we see usually in uh, in interviews and we see in Forbes are the ones that um, really made it, but they are exceptions to the model. And um, I think it's important to try but also take into consideration any risks and have that contingency plan in place. So it's not necessarily that dumber people get farther away. Um, that would be lucky people. Um, it's a question of uh, people that are not as afraid of risk and they put it all out there in the chance and in the um, likelihood that they will get something back from it. Thank you. And again, playing the devil's advocate, again, if you are going to hedge your bets or have contingency plans ready, they need resources. And if they need resources, you're taken from the focus and the investment, whether in your startup or your new idea, which makes it either take longer or not have enough momentum for it to pass through the critical line and, and get gravity and momentum. And therefore, actually, the more you hedge your bets, the less focused, the more dispersed you are. Because life is not like those portfolios where there are uh, instruments that are ready and you just put your money in whatever way you wish to. Life is like there is one goal and the more resources you put towards it, the more probability you'll get to it. And the less resources you put towards it, the more likely you are fail. So by hedging your bets and taking in consideration more of those scenarios, you have less resources to break through. I'm not talking about billion dollar corporations who can afford that for bootstrapping entrepreneurs. Any $1 can be the difference between the breakthrough or not. And therefore, any plan B is a distraction from plan A. And that most successful, like you said, you personally, you said they will bet on the likelihood and they will take educated risks and all that. So like I said, the more they think of all scenarios which might not happen, probability by, by definition means it's not 100% the more they will need to hedge their bets and therefore they have less left for the main goal and therefore they're handicapping themselves. What are your thoughts about this? Um, well, like everything in life, it isn't 100%. Let's take even like psychology as a social science. It only makes probabilistic likelihoods. Uh, it's true that life isn't like an ETF where you can invest in thousands of companies at once and almost be guaranteed uh, success. I think there is some truth in the sense that uh, the more you 
um, take resources away from the the initial idea, you might run out of resources altogether for your big plan. I think more what I was referring to is if you have um, the resources available to do, for example, some market research or uh, like those billion dollars corporations, if you do have the the time and the money to really have that contingency plan in, in, uh, in place, it's a great, uh, it's the perfect scenario. But if you don't have that, I guess um, you would have to go with your your instinct to bet on yourself because if you don't bet on yourself, uh, who's going to do it for you? Um, of course, you you might need an idea of overall whether, for example, if we're still talking about startups, if people are actually going to be interested in what you're selling, um, the good or the service, um, but it shouldn't be uh, overpowering over the product itself. It should be only uh, something in the back of your mind that you don't allocate all of your time and energy towards. Because as you said, if you do that, just the quality of your overall good or service might diminish. And um, what I would like to, uh, what I usually picture it as is a, is a telescope. You should have a kind of telescopic view of um, your idea and at the end of that telescope it should be the the product and everything on around the corners is the things that you also kind of want to take into account but that are not overpowering your main hunch or your main gut instinct or your main idea as it were thank you and you said to follow your instinct well, that makes us know more than animals because instinctive behavior is primal and is not part of the neocortex or whatever you want to call it. And well, tell me about this first, but you spoke about that you take your idea, you put it at the end of the telescope, you take all things into consideration. Well, if you look at system theory, emergence, or even chaos theory, we find that actually the causes and effects are too complex and that success is more of an emergent, which doesn't come from any one cause or effect, but when conditions click together in the perfect way, influenced by the environment and unforeseen circumstances and some butterfly that is flapping its wings in Peru, <laughs> that is the cause of success, not really one direct one-to-one -one ratio of uh, action to result. <laughs> what do you think about this? Uh, well, I'm quite a fan of chaoticism. I think it's a, a greater um, description of our life uh, compared to holism or reductionism. Um, what I kind of described, it's something along the lines of chaoticism because um, it's factors just playing different types of roles onto your final outcomes. What I would say is, of course, we were not just instinctive and um, we do not base our ideas uh, just entirely on a simple, a simple hunch. We take into consideration other factors as well. But ultimately, um, our success and our outcome is um, just formed by a multitude of factors um, it's not all luck and it's not all talent and it's not all effort. It's a combination of those. And at the end of the day, you put in 
as much as you can. And there's just different percentages of contribution from a lot of factors. It's it's the nature versus nurture argument. Of course, it's not 100% like if something happens in the world, it's not 100% just innate and instinctive. And it's also not 100% just based on environmental factors. It's a, it's a combination of the two. Um, it's a question of uh, to what extent do these factors play a role? Is it more um, instinctive? It is more innate uh, based on... on uh, nature or is it more about socialization is it about the external factors it is about more nurture that's the real question thank you and if you had to choose would you prefer to be very lucky or very smart i would choose very smart because uh, even though there is some truth to luck I, i don't like it it's a very ambiguous concept to me and i don't Mm, I don't really believe in it to a certain extent. Of course, there's coincidences and of course there's different factors playing a role, but um, I'm just a believer in the fact that um, if you put in the effort, uh, it eventually pays off. Maybe not in the way that you intended it to do in the beginning, but somewhere later along the line or later in your life path. I would, I would say smart rather than lucky. Thank you. And are you, by nature, a risk taker or you prefer more certainty and security over taking risks, but maybe you're forced to because logically you know it's necessary? I used to be very risk averse, like most people are, um, until I started studying and just informing myself on several matters in in finance and then the startup scene and just um, reading up on probabilities of success and risk taking and how much um, reward you get from risk, the risk reward ratio and stuff like that. And I guess I, I kind of trained myself in a way to not be so afraid of the uncertain because, um, if you don't bet on yourself, who will? It's just like me when in 2019, I decided to blindly um, go to the UK and take this scholarship, not knowing so much of the outcome, but it ended up being an amazing thing. And it granted me a lot of opportunities. And I would say that uh, since then, I became less risk averse. And I trained myself not to be so afraid of just getting out of my comfort zone and I constantly try to do things that make me afraid Uh, what I like to tell myself is if you're not doing things that you're afraid of you're not living and that's the the mantra or the motto that I've been living with kind of for the last couple of months thank you tell me more because emotions are mammalian so they don't care about logic at all That's why we can use all the logic in the world. But if we're scared or angry or whatever, it doesn't work because the emotions don't reside in that part of the brain if we think about the triune brain theory. So you said you had that mantra, if you're not risking, you're not living. And you had reference experience of taking a risk to go to the UK and it turned out to be wonderful, so it was somewhat of a confirmation. But really, if I, what I'm hearing, and 
I apologize if you don't like it. It sounds like religious faith that you don't believe in luck because you you prefer to not believe in it, not because it's real or not. Well, now if you think about it, a lot of people are coming to the conclusion, even scientists, that too many things in life are random and that it's a statistical variance which shapes our lives more than anything, including the example of you going to the UK, that most things that totally transform our lives are random events we didn't plan for, we didn't expect. It's either meeting the right person at the right time and the right place, or being in the right time and the right place in front of the right opportunity. And that changes the trajectory of life rather than plans like five-year plans and 10-year plans and all that. What are your thoughts about this? Um, Well, if we start with luck, I don't like the idea of luck because in a way it makes you idle. It makes you lazy. It makes you kind of... Why? (laughs) If you think about it, no, really, think. For example, me, I think this way because one of my favorite books is is how randomness rules our lives i think the that's the subtitle the title i think is um a drunkard's walk or something like that it's wonderful and i think about it look if it's luck which means like let's say i have a one in 100 chance to get something that will be wonderful if we think about the, the pareto principle Anyway, by definition, 80% of things we do will be useless. There'll be around 15% that will be break even, 4% that will be good, 1% that will be wonderful. That makes me think, wonderful. I will take 100 actions. I will figure out which one is the lucky or the 1%, and I will multiply and compound on that, which is really exciting. And it forces me to work much, much harder knowing that Anything I do, I should put a hundred times more effort and tries than I expect because I'm waiting. Like, okay, I think it was Starbucks or whatever, Amazon even or whoever, that people, I remember the entrepreneurs in in an interview, they were speaking, yes, we were trying different business models. And then we realized when we got lucky, when he said that, I thought, yes. (laughs) you know that's what he did they tried like 10 different business models and then they found you know what i mean if you think about luck in a pejorative term of course if you think i wait and then some million dollars will manifest in front of my door (laughs) i agree with you but if we think about luck as variance which means yes you'll try many things or as evolution that many species will come out or variants of a virus, and most of them will die, but a few will be uh, amazing, and they will kill us all. <laughs> you think about it like that, then I try to be as prolific as a virus and know that most things will fail, and I won't feel it, its rejection or anything bad or a worst-case scenario, because I included that I will try 100 things, 1% will be worst-case scenario, but who cares as long as I'm moving towards the 1% amazing. That's my perspective. (laughs) What are your thoughts on this? Which means when you think about all the scenarios, I on purpose do enough to experience all those scenarios because I don't know which try will lead to the amazing outcome. 
And therefore, I realized that it's a lot of hard work, that the harder I work, the luckier I get, because I will fail faster to find the the lucky thing that will work. <laughs> what do you think? Well, that's a great perspective to have. Um, on the other hand, what I've mostly heard for my entire life is um, effort and true work is not as important as luck. And for me, that's very discouraging because, um, of course, if you think it as you do, that it's luck is variance in the system, then, of course, it makes us only stronger and it makes us work harder. But I guess what I've heard, well, maybe it, it's not true for all countries in, in Eastern Europe, but from what I've heard in Moldova, this is the idea that people have of luck, this kind of idyllic thing where you can work as hard as you can, but if you don't get lucky, then it's nothing is going to happen for you. And that's just quite demoralizing for me. So why I don't... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. But why don't I agree with that? Because people are so risk averse that what they call it hard work is simply doing what they have done before again and again and again yeah. and expecting different results, which is the definition of insanity. Yeah, that's true. Doing the same thing and expecting different outcomes is not very is probably one of the worst things you can do. Yes, like most people, what they do is they work the same day for like 10 years or 20 years. <laughs> they don't learn new skills much or very rarely they don't take initiative for new things. And then at the end, after 10 years, they're like, I worked 10 years. It was so hard and I didn't get anything for it. Yes, because you didn't risk anything. Like in French, it's... Uh, Celui qui ne, qui ne tente rien n'a rien. So whoever doesn't take any attempt at anything won't get anything. <laughs> yes, absolutely true. Um, okay, let's return to you. I love this, but this is, <laughs> it's great. But I want to know Nicoletta, not uh, Nicoletta's neocortex. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm interested in the midsection. We'll this later. Uh, you think of the motion and I'll come up with uh, counter arguments on luck, okay? <laughs> okay no you can't because i think about it as variance which is like it's it is statistically that uh, the more chances you get the, the thing is mm -hmm. and if you think about it like you you spoke about chaos theory that means when we do something each time we get slightly a different result mm -hmm. and sometimes we'll get outliers that will be either really bad or really good me, I expect, for example, two days per year that I will have a catastrophe. <laughs> so I look for them and I consider them the price I pay for taking more risks and getting good results. Like this year, I twisted my ankle mm -hmm. and I was laughing and really happy about it. And people were like, well, what the hell was going on? <laughs> and I said, well, I'd rather do this as a payment for me to play the game and try more than something much worse. So I'm happy this is a bad outlier because it means I can keep on going to get a, a magnificent outlier. And, <laughs> All right. you know, if you think about like, if you ask anybody who is super successful, and this is the secret that in the biography, sometimes they hide is they had a lucky break. For example, I interviewed um, the guy who, started one of the most successful startups in robotics in Ukraine. 
And I told him there is too much hero worship when it comes to entrepreneurs, that they're amazing. They make all the right decisions and all that. And I believe, no, actually, if you make 51% correct decisions and 49% wrong decisions, you'll be one of the most amazing people in the world because (laughs) that's a lot of decisions and a lot of that 1% is huge. So he said, I asked him, what was your lucky break? Because although it was a lot of hard work, he said, yeah, a friend of ours called us, said, oh, there is this competition for business plans. Why don't you submit your idea? You're working so hard on your startup. They did. And yes, their idea was good enough to win. And they received 100,000 euros in funding, plus like a year of mentoring by great uh, European entrepreneurs about what to do and all that. And that launch them from a startup into a business. And so if they, that person didn't tell them or if they didn't take that lucky risk on like, instead of thinking, oh, let's work harder, they thought, okay, let's participate in this competition. Just that, like some things in my life, I think if I was 10 seconds late or 10 seconds too early, I wouldn't have gotten that thing. There is that element of... Um, occasion, what they call it. There is a god, I think, in the in the uh, Roman gods, which is Ocasio, that they consider like good timing or great timing or occasion. That's what it's called as one of the gods <laughs> that uh, creates uh, the, the life they want. So yes, I believe as ancient Venetians, they had this thing that they say success is 50% hard work and 50% going to the Lady Fortuna and forcing her to spin her wheel and give us a good or bad outcome. So it's uh, good luck and fortune favors the brave, you know, that John Wick tattoo. (laughs) Fortune favors the brave. So it's, yes, hard work is essential. It's 50%. Otherwise, you'll be one of those one-hit wonders who gets one-trick pony who gets successful one time and then they try to leech off of it forever. Mm-hmm. But continued luck is 50% hard work of forcing Lady Fortuna to spin her wheel, mm-hmm. to spin, 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 knowing that one of those contains like the treasure. <laughs> that is my thought. What is your comment? And let's move to emotions, although this is really wonderful. <laughs> but yeah. the thing is, I'm speaking to your neocortex and I want to speak to your soul. Okay, let's move on to the the soul talking part of the podcast then. What do you believe is the soul? Wow, such hard questions right off the bat. Um, What do I believe is the soul? Well, I would like to believe that it's the, the part of yourself that lives on after your body or your um, the body you've been granted on this earth is no longer there. Uh, your soul, I think it is part, uh, it is made up of all of your emotions. It is made out of your, your memories, your past, but also your future. It's something decisive within you, um, something which is eternal. Yeah. Thank you. Two questions. Mm -hmm. One, you said, I like to believe or I'd like to believe. Can you believe anything you wish to believe? Do you have this ability? What is your process to manifest your own beliefs? And second, 
you said your soul is includes your memories. Mm -hmm. So if someone has a brain transplant, where does the soul go? Yeah, well, it's very hard to pinpoint where the soul is actually located. What I what I choose to believe and what uh, makes most sense for my overthinking neocortical uh, essence is that um, soul is something that uh, people chose to uh, believe a long time ago to be true, which is basically uh, our conscious and our subconscious within the brain. And even though if you would have a, a brain transplant, I think Mm, there's something very intertwined between the brain and your soul because at the end of the day, your soul is what defines you, what unconscious and conscious thoughts you have, and those are all located within the brain, and those are all interconnected. So I, I would assume that if you would have a brain transplant, that would be pretty tragic. Well, it's a good thing we can't really have brain transplants at, at the moment. You said, I choose to believe. How can you choose your beliefs? Um, not allow yourself to have... Well, it's like everything in life. You choose the, the set of beliefs that you lay your entire existence on. It's like you choose to believe in God or you choose to believe in um, a certain religion and not in others. You choose to believe in luck or you don't. It's um, something that's defines you it's the set of beliefs on which you lay everything else you do it's uh, kind of the foundation for how you understand the world that's what i would say thank you what i'm hearing is that it's the premise or the foundational assumption but the definition of belief is that it's held there by emotion that's why it's not easy for people to change their beliefs through logic is it that what you mean? Do you believe, but you feel emotions about your beliefs or not? Mm, it depends what type of beliefs. I think that if it's a grandiose belief, like um, maybe, say, religion, something linked to death or life or existence, then there's bound to be some emotion linked to that. Because how you think about the world and the type of beliefs that you have is um, kind of influencing your emotions. So if you choose to be, for example, a nihilist, and that's your set of beliefs, then I would guess that wouldn't make you a very happy human being because you would think everything in life is pretty pointless. So I guess at some it's to a certain extent emotions and beliefs are linked, but that doesn't go for each and every set of beliefs i would assume it's mostly a working model for the very very important ones yes are you highly emotional or do you experience re emotions reduced um <laughs> i wouldn't describe myself as a very emotional person um, I've gotten a lot better over the years. Um, when I, I was younger, I guess I, I was a pretty reactive and uh, emotional child. But as I got older, I think I, I learned how to, to deal with my emotions. I learned techniques of meditation and I've learned how to deal with them so that um, you don't really show people the side of you where you're just 
very vulnerable and raw and only emotion and not logical. It's like there's two parts of me. There's the the intellectual side that critically analyzes and overthinks everything. And then there's the emotional side. And I rarely um, choose to just be simply emotional around somebody. You would have to be a very close friend of mine or a, le- a relative for me to show my true, truest emotional side around you. You spoke about that truest emotional side, that it's raw and vulnerable. Did you feel hurt or like that people's comments or anything like that when you were a little girl was too much to handle? Or is it for you that when you had that, you couldn't activate your intellect that well and therefore you chose to subdue it in order to be more logical? Um, I think it's a combination of both. Um, it's just, um, I, I didn't have a, a very uh, good spirit of belonging when I was younger. And um, that affected me in, in ways that I'm still dealing with right now as, a, as an adult. Um, I think it's just that at the time I wasn't able to quite pinpoint where was that coming from and how to really deal with it because I was not well enough emotionally equipped to deal with those, uh, with those feelings and with that sense of not belonging. But as I grew older and started reading up about it, started learning a little bit about psychology, I was able to rationalize it in a sense. And that's what really helped me understand my emotional side as well as um, learn how to better control my emotions for other people and for the so for the wider majority thank you what do you mean exactly by that sense of not belonging is it that you didn't feel people understood you is it that you didn't feel connected to the values of your community is it that you felt like an outcast and different or that people were mean or like what does it mean um well ever since i could remember even starting from kindergarten i was not very well liked within um social groups and i couldn't truly understand it's not that i don't align myself with the values of my community because i I absolutely love my country sure it has its flaws within the mindset of the people but at the end of the day i was born here i shared the values and their um, some of their beliefs in a sense it was just the fact that I mm, some of the groups that I've been a part of for the majority of um, kindergarten and then living into leading into primary school and then middle school were friends that were mm, kind of let's say only circumstantial friends people that wouldn't choose me as the first person to um, hang out with and that really affected me until um, only I think the last three years of high school that I, I really found my, my group of friends, people that didn't make me feel like an outcast and that didn't put me as a second choice in a sense. Thank you and I will share my own thoughts about this. I believe that the world is more like an economy where there are different industries and niches and that our first purpose is to find our people and therefore by definition you know people take lightly that decision of who they consider to be friend and they call people 
friends just because they happen to grow up together or to be in the same school or to be neighbors. But in reality, and as Baltazar Gracian in the art of worldly wisdom, maybe like 400 or 500 years ago, he said that the most important decision you can make is choosing carefully your friends. So my thought about it is, yes, they should have being such bad friends to you because they're not your people, you're not on the same vibe, you're not on the same kind of person, and your first role in life and first purpose is to find your people or your niche or your economy and not only groups of people who make you feel welcomed, but totally soulmates where you can be absolutely honest, vulnerable, raw, and emotional around them, <laughs> and you'll feel alive about it, and you'll feel wonderful, and those are the wrong, right people. And any person you open up and you're raw and vulnerable with, and they react in any way that is not ideal, they're not the right person, that's a way to screen them out and to not waste your time rather than a thing to be offended about. It's like trying to put lipstick on a pig, well, it's a pig. You just screen it out and find another person. You're not interested in anything. And I would like to ask you, you said if you're not taking risks, I think early on, you're not alive. Is this correct? And then I'll ask a question and you can comment on everything, of course. I would say it's the most uh, truest thing that I've come across so far. If you're not taking risks, you're not alive. Okay, some people say if you're not feeling emotions, you're not alive. Or even if you think in biology, the definition of life is irritability. That if an organism can be irritated by the environment, which means it will respond to stimulants from the environment, therefore it is alive. And therefore, any reaction, whether negative, positive, crying, being happy, uh, yelling, jumping, or whatever, it is a sign of being alive. I So what are your thoughts about that, that actually feeling and emotions are the truest uh, sign of life, as well as that life is an economy and we should um, kick out all the wrong people and create our mini universe filled with the right people and our own niche and our own mini sovereign country? Um, regarding the, the being alive aspect, well, I would say that taking risks uh, makes you alive thing mostly applies to um, humans and not so much every type of uh, biological human, not human, biological being that exists in our system. Of course, there are other definitions for being alive. I would say emotion can also make you feel alive. But then again, there are people that are incapable of feeling emotion. And uh, they would argue that they're as much as alive as everybody else. I guess that would be a pretty, pretty bad life to have, not being able to, to feel any emotion. But at the end of the day, um, it's all about how you interpret the meaning of life. Is the, That's a, a question for the philosophers, and uh, uh, it's going to be answered. We are philosophers. <laughs> We're lovers of wisdom. That's the definition of a philosopher. Is people, any person who loves wisdom is a philosopher. You are philosophia or a philosopher. Yes. 
kind of a philosopher. We love wisdom. We're thinking, so therefore we exist. Uh, yes, uh, to be or not to be, that is the question. Um, what was the other question about the the economy? Wrong people, the yeah. right people. Because look, there are 8 billion people in the world. Can't you find eight that are per- perfect soulmates for you? I can argue that yes, rather than wasting your time on the seven billion nine hundred million nine 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 whatever. Uh, that would be the perfect scenario. Of course, there's got to be a lot of uh, screening to be done before you can find those eight soulmates, and that might take some time and quite a lot of your effort. But at the end of the day, if you do meet those people that make you feel included and that really connect to you on a very raw level, then I think you've won the game of life, basically. Yes, and it's worth worth it, isn't it? And that happens through them not liking you. You know what I mean? If we try to have people like us, then the right people won't know who we are and the wrong people will stay longer in our lives. You know what I mean? That you, by definition, in kindergarten (laughs) and other parts when people didn't include you, you were doing the correct thing of being emotional, of showing your soul, and those were the wrong people. You were just stuck with them. It wasn't your fault. (laughs) It was just a system that is created in order to not help you and support you meet your eight out of eight billion. And it's your job. It's not about blaming it on the system. Once you understand this, then everything you do, everything you say, everything you, every single breath should be about sharing your full truth and full personality so that 99% of people will leave. <laughs> they were like, this is a crazy girl. I'm out. <laughs> well, <laughs> the oh, 1% were you. like, this is the right place. I belong here. <laughs> Yeah, precisely. It's kind of like uh, the system of supply and demand where you find that equilibrium point is where you meet your eight soulmates, your truest uh, people, I would say. Thank you. And if you'd like, tell me about this. When people don't know you yet, do they seem to have a different impression about you than if they get closer to you and know you? And then they say, wow, I thought at first you're xyz or your uh, whatever but now that i know you you're totally different from what i thought <laughs> uh when people first uh see me i guess the first impression that i give off is uh i'm quite cold very serious um <laughs> i do not like to have fun and things like that they uh, they see my glasses and they they see the way i dress quite uh, dark academia inspired and uh, they assume a lot of things which may not be true and then they meet me they're like ah you're actually not that bad like you can make jokes and stuff <laughs> good for you um yeah so i i'm breaking those uh, those impressions on on a daily basis with meeting new people i would guess thank you so two things one are you similar to many of the ukrainian girls on my podcast who said they can have like positive emotions inside but most of the time their faces is are too serious too cold too poker face and sometimes people think why is this girl so mean and angry but she can be kind and good it's just 
her face is that way. Is that your situation? Um, I would like to think no. Nobody has told me as of yet that I, I do make that face. I, I try to present myself as very as very open uh, and kind and smiley. Um, but if you just see me like walking down the street and not communicating with other people, you're not going to see me very reactive and making emotions and smiling and stuff. You're just going to see me as just minding my own business. And sometimes that could come across as, um, being serious or rather intimidating, which would not be true. Thank you. And then to ask you, if you met some people you don't know them very well, but you like them. You would like them to to get to know you. How would they know they li- you like them if you seem and appear to be cold, reserved, and not fun? Um, hmm. How do people know that they that I like them? Um, my love language is uh, caring for other people. So if um, I'm trying extra hard to make sure that your every need is is met, or uh, perhaps if um, I make sure that you're comfortable, or um, I ask you about your well-being in conversation, or even if we're closer friends, I might mom you as a lot of my my close friends would like to say that I'm kind of a mom to them then you truly know that I I care about you and uh, I'm not stone cold (laughs) nor serious um, and I, I truly care about you wonderful so are you a pleaser what I mean with this do you derive more happiness from momming other people than being mommed Oh, uh, definitely, definitely, I would say so. Um, It's not that I don't like it. It's just I would rather uh, let you um, take care of me very minimally and I constantly take care of you than the other way around. Because I, I like to put up this this hard shell that I'm uh, very independent and I can do a lot of things on my own and please don't mommy me and I can do all of that stuff alone. Uh, whereas with you, I'm kind of like, oh, so what do you need? Like, let's do this, let's do that, let me do that for you and things like that. Um, I, I definitely like doing it more than uh, re- being on the receiving end of it, definitely. Thank you. This was absolutely such a wonderful conversation and it doesn't feel like one hour. And to ask you, though, what realization about life that really changed your perspective and that you feel the world needs to hear more about and to use in order to live a better, more effective, happier or whatever it is life? Uh, I understood about taking risks. That could be it. Or anything else, any paradigm shift or understanding or insight about life that you believe if others adopt it as well, they'll have a better life? Um, what these past two years, and especially my, my closest friends have taught me, is the comfort zone will kill you. You need to be constantly be getting out of your comfort zone. Like you said, if you're stuck at the same dead-end job for 10 years and you're constantly complaining that things aren't getting good for you, then get out of your comfort zone. Take up a new skill. uh, Take an online course. Just do something with your life. Because if you're constantly stuck in your comfort zone, you're not going to get 
anywhere in life, the comfort zone will kill you. I agree 1000%. Thank you, Nicoletta. It was an honor, a privilege, a pleasure. And if people want to find you on social media, maybe to follow you, what is the best social media to do that? And if there, are any, there is any project you'd like to raise awareness about for any reason, you have time to do that now as well. Um, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn. It's both Nicoletta Suruciano. Instagram is Nicoletta.Suruciano. Um, project, I guess I'm cur- currently working on my own startup. It's going to be an online course for people that just started investing or for people that don't know how to start investing. It's the basic knowledge that you would need to know in areas of finance, macroeconomics, and it's all 100% online, very easy to use platform. And that is going to be ready uh, at the end of September. So we're currently, me and my business partner are currently working on it. Um, Either than that, uh, (laughs) that's it. I guess it's, uh, it's all about me. Thank you. And in which language is it? Because that can be relevant to listeners. Oh, uh, it's in English. It's uh, 100% in English. We wanted to make it as international as possible so we can uh, share our knowledge just across the globe, not just in a specific country. So it's in English. Thank you so much, Nicoletta. And it was wonderful. Have a great day. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun.